Hi friend, you're listening to a London Lyceum exclusive episode that is typically only available to subscribers. If you want to have access to all of our exclusive content, including Kiffin's Keep, Generally Particular, Typology by Immersion, The Hanover House, and all of our live stream content, consider joining for just $5 a month. Not only will you be getting access to all of this content and more, but you'll also be supporting and investing in an institution serious about thinking. So why not go ahead and click the link in the description now and enjoy all of the exclusive content directly to your mobile device or wherever you listen. As always, we're thinking about new ways to get you thinking, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Jake Stone. I'm Jesse Owens. And we welcome you to another episode of Generally Particular, a production of the London Lyceum. Generally Particular is a show dedicated to discussing and reflecting on the whole Baptist story. We are a show by Baptists, about Baptists, and for Baptists, as well as Anglicans, Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and yes, any Waldensians and Paulicians who may be listening this week. I'm a Calvinist Baptist. Jesse is an Arminian Baptist. In the 17th and 18th centuries, we would have been known as a General Baptist and a particular Baptist, so we've brought those together in what we believe is a fun way to talk about Baptist history, hence generally particular. Today's episode is entitled, You Shall Not Pass, Samuel Richardson and Religious Toleration. But first, let's talk about a little bit of culture for a moment. Jesse, where is You Shall Not Pass? What is that from? Is it a John Wayne movie? No, that's Gandalf, Lord of the Rings. Oh, oh yeah, he holds out that big oh stick he's got. Folks, yeah. You know, what's funny is most people critique me for not being very engaged in fiction, but up next to Jesse, I'm very cultured in fictional literature. <laughs> so that makes me feel good. Yes, it is, it is Gandalf, have... that great scene, and we're thinking about Samuel Richardson and all of those early Baptists standing against magisterial reformed folk saying you shall not pass now speaking of john wayne i did see today someone that is uh on faculty at southern seminary who is making a defense for complementarianism uh, shared that he has never watched a john wayne movie in his life now apparently that question must not have come up in the interview process so I think that I need to submit that to the president's office, that we should include that when they hire prospective faculty. But Jesse, do you have a favorite John Wayne movie? I'm kind of scared to say in this venue, but I'll, I'll go with uh, True Grit. And why is that your favorite? Or is that because it's the only one you've ever seen? That's because it's the only one I've ever seen. So you're not much better at all. Good, good <laughs> night, folks. <laughs> You see what I have to deal with here. Well, I'll give the audience two. First is Hey, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, we weren't allowed to watch movies. So it's fortunate I was able from, to see that. You one. couldn't watch old movies? I mean, that's usually that's usually allowed. <laughs> I could I couldn't play with face cards. I couldn't uh, <laughs> uh, shoot pool, couldn't play pool, couldn't mix bathe, and couldn't watch John Wayne movies. Well well, were you allowed to watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? That's 
that that's just uh that's that's heretical basically you've never um, seen that <laughs> i've seen it i've oh. seen it i've seen it i was just trying to carry it out i did think though i um, we might have to do an episode where i explain what mixed bathing is because the average person watching this has no idea yeah i didn't want to delve into what you meant by that just keep moving us along there but it anyway just means men and women not swimming together that's all it means yeah well we, we know that both Jesse and I come from very fundamentalist backgrounds, but um, I, 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 we, we did watch John Wayne movies, and um, my dad and mom love westerns. And I mean, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, you name it. But on John Wayne movies, let, let me say, if you have not watched either of these movies, then that's what you need to do then after you listen to this podcast. The first is The Searchers. My dad and I, I don't know how many times we've watched that movie together. And I think, and, and I know it's going to sound a little patriotic here, but I think John Wayne's character in that movie really uh, embodies the American spirit that we don't quit. We just keep going. It's a great movie. Second is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is John Wayne and another one of my favorite actors, Jimmy Stewart. And it really is a great movie. And it has some kind of political dimensions to it as well. So that might be why um, I like that. Now, we're going to really put Jesse on the spot with a bonus question here on movies. Have you ever seen Jimmy Stewart's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? I feel like I've seen part of that, but I I don't... uh... I don't know that I've sat down and watched the whole thing. I'm not. I'm not a movie buff. I'm just not. A movie Folks, buff. go I've watch Jimmy Stewart. It, it, when you feel discouraged about America, Jimmy Stewart in that movie is what America is supposed to be about. And the last Jimmy Stewart movie I'll talk about is Shenandoah, which is set during the Civil War. And let me just say, I still cry at the end of that movie. I still do. Still do. All right. So. None of this has anything oh, to do with today's topic of Samuel Richard. Yeah, I was, I was hoping to see, I was hoping to hear the segue on that. Okay, well, you know, it's just interesting. Hey, it's summertime. It's hot. What can I say? We just kind of, I'm scatterbrained a little bit these days. Although I do need to have my brain refreshed and refined since I'll be taking Hebrew this fall. Um, all of mm. you can be praying for me as <laughs> I. Begin that. For those of the for for those watching that don't know, Jake's air conditioning in his apartment currently isn't working, and it's about ninety outside in Louisville. So, and that's how, hopefully he makes it. That's how dedicated hopefully I am to this program that I am here. Yeah, you know, not all of us live on a golf course like Jesse, and so uh, <laughs> so some of us, you know, are making it barely. So anyway, uh, some of us eat steak. That would be Jesse. Some of us eat poor yeah. man's steak, bologna. That's what I eat. So anyway. See, this is not this is not true because on the 4th of July, you asked me if I grilled out. And I said, I went to a family cookout. And you asked what was grilled. And I told you hot dogs. And you gave me nothing but contempt. So yeah, I, I, mean, I feel sad. like... I feel like we're kind of uh, kind of sw- swapping roles here. Yeah, but the sad but thing is, ahead. is you can afford the filet mignon, and you went with hot dogs. You know, <laughs> okay. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, that's even worse. 
It's one thing. It's one thing if you're restricted and have to eat, you know, hot dogs. When you can go higher and you stay low, <clears throat> I don't know what that says. Obviously, mm. you're not very seeker sensitive and pragmatic. <laughs> no one has ever accused me of that. Mm. Well, today we're talking about Samuel Richardson. Some might say he was pragmatic. I don't know. Um, but we're going to talk about another one of these Baptist, early English Baptist, that is not as well known. Our last time we, we met, we talked about uh, John Merton and his contributions to the development of religious liberty. And by the way, I, I just want to say, I think we've probably set a, a, a new record in, in Baptist life. I don't know anybody else that can move from steaks and hot dogs to Samuel Richardson religious liberty like we can. So, you know, I, I think that deserves, if you've never given us a rating, give us five stars for that. Some, some would say fried chicken would be a much easier path. It would be, but um, although I will, speaking of that, I, I sent this to Jesse yesterday. I saw on Twitter this fascinating picture from the 19, I think it was the 1920s, uh, near uh, Bardstown, Kentucky up here. It was the all-you-can-eat fried chicken and satanic exorcism at St. Thomas's. So um, from five to eight in the evening. Tell you what, I think we need to bring that back. So, and, uh, oh. you know, I, just a great combination there. Of course, there might've been some people who thought that Samuel Richardson needed to have some demons exercised out of him since he was a Baptist in these days. So <clears throat> let's talk about Samuel Richardson, Jesse. First of all, there may be some people who are as nerdy as you and I listening, and they may say, wait a minute, I thought that guy was kind of out in left field. So is Samuel Richardson somebody that we should read and listen to? That's, I think that's a really important question. We're going to discuss this one work, <clears throat> primarily this one work on religious toleration, uh, the necessity of toleration in matters of religion today. Um, but um, yeah, Richardson has some other works um, on the uh, atonement, and he has a work where he actually defends Tobias Crisp, uh, who's accused, you know, of being an antinomian. So uh, who else Richardson defended, has who else defended Tobias Crisp? Who else defended Tobias yeah, Crisp? in Baptist life. In later, later in Baptist life? Yeah. Um, I would assume John Gill might have. Yes. How about Brian? Did Brian, did John Brian de defend Crisp? Well, Gill reprinted. I think Gill's the one that reprinted and republished some of Crisp's works. Mm. I say all that to say that that Jesse is still not enamored with, with John Gill, even you know, like Garrett Walden and others. So go ahead. I'm I'm intrigued by John Gill as a historical figure. Yeah, but I'm intrigued by, by but I'm intrigued by lots I'm of I'm intrigued by Garrett's I'm intrigued by Garrett's defense of him not being a hyper Calvinist. I think all that's intellectually stimulating. Okay. I, I don't read Gill's commentaries before, you know, all of my sermons, but, uh, that's part I'm of interested. the forbidden books. They're well, you know what? The Welch college library has Gill's commentaries. Okay. Let the record show. I've seen them in there. I haven't used Restricted them. Restricted or rare. 
No, they're on the shelves. They're okay. on the shelves. Okay. Cool. They're accessible. They hadn't been checked out in a long, long time, but they're accessible. <laughs> I won't make a joke. Go ahead. So, uh, so, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think there are some that would say uh, Richardson had some questionable views, uh, certainly later in life, um, maybe in some of his other works, uh, especially this, this work on justification. Uh, I think there's another one on hell. I haven't read that one. Um, and, uh, so, so I think there's some question about that. I'm not a, not a Richardson scholar, so I'm interested to see some of the other things that are out there. Probably the most notable thing for people, uh, listening to this, uh, are that he is that he was a signer of the first London confession. Um, and some think he was very instrumental in the, the first London confession. Again, I'll leave that to, to experts of the, the first London to, to speak to that, uh, he had some relationship with with William Kiffin. Obviously, you know, there's kind of a tight knit group there early on. Uh, the work on justification actually has a preface uh, by William Kiffin to it. Um, there's some interaction between Richardson and Vavasor Powell and some others. So I, I do think that theologically, Richardson probably had some issues uh, later on that maybe some people might consider heterodox. Um, but we're focusing primarily on this work on, on religious toleration. What, what have you, what have you been able to find out about his biography? Cause I asked for that. We were talking about this yesterday and most of the resources that I have are very, you know, minimum in any kind of like biographical details of his life. I did find this one, uh, collection from, uh, from, Superlapsarian Press uh, that Who? had a biographical <laughs> Superlapsarian Press. Wow, now that's a, uh, that's a name that communicates a lot when you read it. You, you can see why they might be interested in Samuel Richardson, on uh, especially thinking about that work on justification. But um, they had a brief biographical sketch in there, um, but it, it actually doesn't really say much about Richardson. Um, it said he's known primarily as an author, uh, but really not much beyond that. So I, I'd be interested, and maybe some of our listeners can dig into this a little bit more. I'd be interested to know more about, uh, about Richardson's biographical material, but, uh, but looking in the, in the text that I have, the histories I have, and kind of just looking around online a little bit, I didn't see a whole lot. Well, he's not. I'm, I'm looking up here on my shelf. You can see if you are familiar enough, this is the volumes of the British Particular Baptist. Um, he is not in here because, in their judgment, he didn't finish well, I'm assuming, because his later work on uh, hells, most say that he communicates basically that he doesn't believe anymore in the doctrine of eternal punishment. So, but yeah, I mean, I... I I look through, I mean, you know, I look through a few and um, Whitley's A History of British Baptists had one reference to him in there. And that was very, just a very minor, minor note. So, yeah, the title of that work, at least a shortened version of the title is A Discourse on the Torments of Hell. Yeah. So, so but we are talking about him because he is a part of this early generation of the particular Baptist in England and is the first London Baptist Confession goes through three revisions 
1644 is the first edition, 1646 is the second, and then 1651 is the third. And I've got Dr. Jim Renahan's exposition of the First London Baptist Confession. And Richardson's name is listed in 44 and in 46. It is interesting that he is paired with uh, Spilsbury, John Spilsbury, because the way the names are, are done, he's paired with Spilsbury at both times in 44 and 46, but his name is not there in 51 and the later printings of it. So I think that's interesting, but knowing that he wrote on this subject of religious toleration gives us insight into how these early Baptists were thinking through this issue. Uh, we could do a whole episode on how the three editions of the 16th of the first London confession changes a lot on the issue of the civil magistrate. I mean, primarily because every time they did it, there had been a radical change essentially in the political structure in the nation. So they're having to kind of adjust what they say based on circumstances. And, and one thing too, somebody, you know, you, you hear, you know, Richardson's kind of, you know, quirks and heterodoxies, you may think, why, why would we even bother? And I think it's important to understand that this, this period of time, there's a lot of flux really in Baptist life as far as kind of development. I mean, you know, sometimes we think we're living in crazy times in the United States of America, which we are. I mean, <laughs> I mean, all you got to do is look and see how things are going in the presidential campaign. And I mean, we've got 18 more months to go and it looks like it's going to be an interesting roller coaster ride. And but as I mm -hmm. tried to encourage Jesse this week, that as bad as things are, just remember that 200 years ago, the sitting vice president of the United States shot and killed the ex-secretary of the Treasury. So we've we've had problems in our in our history, and but that was a <clears throat> that was a gentleman's duel, you know. It was a very gentleman. Yeah, but Aaron Burr was on trial later for treason. Um, this was <laughs> not not a really, you know, not a not a great guy. Um, <clears throat> grandson of Jonathan Edwards, but um, yeah, would say that it's you know it shows that it does not pass on. Uh, by carnal generation and so crazy times in england i mean really from 1640 i mean i think about i mean this is not a history lesson on england of the 17th century but i mean if you think about somebody like for example william kiffin who lived a long life i mean you think about mm -hmm. what england was like when he was born and what england was like when he died and there was a lot that transpired politically, culturally, yeah. socially, and religiously. And say all that to say, there's a lot happening. So these men need to be heard. We understand where they may have come up short, but we we are grateful for what we can glean. And I think Richardson's work here, knowing its connections with the men of the first generation, and then how we'll talk about some of the things that he cites at the end, um, I think we have something to glean from. Now, the reason we're doing this topic is because Jesse is a part of a elite group of Baptist historians that are working through some of these men. So I have Jesse's notes um, that he wrote out on the margins of this work, which is very fascinating. Um, on one page, we I got into a little bit of Jesse's eschatology. 
he just wrote beast revelation 13 and then in the small print he said see the left behind series and um <laughs> and so and uh smiley faces too i really enjoy okay and <clears throat> i want to give a little insight here okay so i do i put smiley faces in the margins of things that i think are funny <clears throat> and sometimes they're funny in maybe a I don't know. Like, I think if someone comes and looks at these smiley faces, they're going to think, what, what did he think was funny about that? But I, I think I'm correct here and I need to double check this. I thought that was strange that I did that. And I just, I never really mentioned it to anyone, but I'm almost certain that Tom Nettles writes smiley faces in the margins of his text sometimes. So I feel like I'm in good company. Well, I do know that I one time happened to come upon Dr. Nettles, uh, writing in the margins of a book that he was reading, and it was Stephen Wolf's Christian Nationalism book. I don't think he had any smiley faces that he wrote in the margins when I was there watching him and talking with him. He just told me he was writing so much he didn't know if he'd finish the book. Anyway, we won't go down that rabbit trail today. No, no, let's let's go down that let's go down that road. Um, so let me just tell a funny, funny story. So, Doc, I know you people may listen to this and think that we think Dr. Nettles is the only Baptist historian um, because we quote and talk about him a lot, but it's just because we respect him and we, we look up to him a lot. And one reason that I do is Dr. Nettles uh, volunteers on campus at the thrift store here uh, every Thursday afternoon. And when I went by one afternoon to take something from the library there he was at the desk and i saw that he was uh reading and he had his pencil out and writing in the margins and he uh told me what he was reading and said that he didn't know if he's going to get done with it because he was having to write so many corrections um in the margins and let's just say i don't think he subscribed to the, the book's thesis and uh he really got going talking about something before long a line had formed and um dr nettles was told tom the line and dr nettles replied they all need to hear this so i just you know so i agree when he speaks we need to hear so um so was he was he like working the the register or something? yeah so he worked he works there at the checkout so um Okay. And, uh, but yeah. he was holding up the line, making his notes in, in the book. Well, he, well, to be fair, the line was held up because I was there talking to him. So I, I contri oh. I contributed to that. So mm, that's, the that's, story. that's why the Thursday afternoon assignment to go there is sparingly given to me. Um, because the five minute trip turns into a longer trip when I go <laughs> on Thursday. So to say all that, Jesse, tell me, what is this work on religious toleration? What, what, what read us, read us the whole full title of this work. Yeah. The, um, the whole title is the necessity of toleration in matters of religion or certain questions propounded to the synod tending to prove that corporal punishment uh, ought not to be inflicted upon such as hold errors in religion and that in matters of religion, men ought not to be compelled, but have liberty and freedom. You want me to keep going? No, you can stop there. We got okay. a sense of it. 
but to tell people it, we don't even it, have it to still, discuss it now it still goes on after that so so who is the synod um that's a great question who is the synod jake well it's not the synod of dort here that's in reference <laughs> Would be the Westminster Assembly. Uh, that would seem to be the case, yes. Yeah. And so we have here this work. Uh, man, I, you were making me sweat there for a minute. I thought it was the Westminster Assembly. And then you take that sip and pause. And you're like, I don't know what I'm talking about on here. All right, so. Well, he does have, he does have, I mean, so this is published in what, 1647, yeah. 1640. Yeah. So then he does it at the end. Also, here's the faith of the Assembly of Divines as it was taken out of the exact copy of their practice with the nonconformist answer why they cannot receive and submit to said faith. And, and there's no love lost for Richardson for the Presbyterians, by the way. He's uh, he's 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 not real happy about the Presbyterians. Well, you know, we want to be charitable and ecumenical, but we have to remember that um, these groups uh, arrested us, jailed us, drowned us, and exiled us. Not that we're bitter, but George Stefaniak has said that that's my favorite line to use when talking about other groups and their interactions with Baptists. And I said, what did I say that wasn't true? I thought about the <laughs> statement from um, another Lord of the Rings reference here. He never forgave and he never forgot. Now I do hmm. want to forgive, but I don't forget. So we don't forget these historical matters. So let's talk about Samuel Richardson here and this, these opening statements. I found it fascinating that he begins setting up why religious toleration should be given to all men. And he says, because it is God's way to have religion free and only to flow from an inward principle of faith and love, neither would God be worshipped of unwilling worshipers. And he references from John 4. And so I think it's very fascinating that he begins off here showing that worship, real worship can only come from uh, God changing our hearts and bringing about yeah. the the fruit of conversion. So I and I'm hoping, you know, a little side note here, the London Lyceum podcast family has grown that now it's a typology by immersion with Cody Float and Hunter Heinzman, and it was kind of alluded to there that we don't talk about the Bible on this podcast. So may the record be, be set forth that, number one, the scriptures inform everything that we say here, um, because to be Baptist is to be biblical. And I say that tongue in cheek. If I had known that, if I had known that, by the way, we would have made this episode a compendium of texts used by Samuel Richardson to defend religious toleration. That's that's how we would have gone. No, we would have just we would have just had camp meeting on here. I mean, we'd have just done that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take much to pull pull that out of me. So, no, and, it doesn't. And no, it doesn't. Um, I mean, Jesse has heard me in his truck uh, get going in that old that old way. 
But also, and we, we love Cody and Hunter, and I think that their stuff is going to be excellent, and I hope everybody will go and listen to it. But it does show here that it's, for Richardson, he also gives another example from Scripture I think was interesting is about the, the life of Daniel and the three Hebrews mm-hmm. and how they stood for what was biblically correct, even in the face of the civil law saying otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they appeal to a, to a whole host of texts. Richardson appeals to a whole host of texts. One that appears in Richardson, but also appears in, I think in Hellwest, but it appears in Merton and it also appears in Roger Williams is the idea of wheat and tares. And it kind of, a, it, it's used really throughout a lot of tolerationist literature of this religious tolerationist literature of this period. Sometimes the, the idea of wheat and tares are appealed to by those who believe in established religion to make the case that wheat and tares should be allowed to exist within an established church so that within the church you have wheat and tares. But what Baptists consistently point out is that the notion of the wheat and the tares in Matthew's gospel is the difference between believers in the world. So the idea is that believers and unbelievers are allowed to coexist in the world and then God deals with those uh, by himself in the future. It's not as if we're to, supposed to have both uh, within the church and to allow wheat and tares to coexist within the church, but that they're to be allowed to coexist in the world. And then God separates, uh, the Lord separates the wheat and the tares. And so actually um, in, in Merton's work, he says, uh, it may be that if we allow the tares to continue alongside of the wheat and we don't persecute them, it might be that the tares actually become wheat, that they're converted. Um, so that's a significant text uh, that uh, that Baptists consistently deal with is Matthew 20 there and, uh, and one that comes up in Richardson too. Okay, so he sets forth these kind of opening principles and then he gives these questions that he mm-hmm. wants answered. And yeah. Yeah, it's a series of like 70 questions. 70 questions. And let's let's think for a little bit. Let's do some numerology here for a minute. Why, why 70, do you think? I don't know, but we had Daniel and now we've got 70. So I'm just, I'm interested. You know, I think, you know, you know, I mean, what, what can I say except I think he's equating here perfection and that the Baptists are the chosen ones. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. Cody and Hunter tell us, explained us why Samuel Richardson chose 70 there. So I'm sure they could. They could. So let's talk. We, we're not going to go through all 70 questions here. We're going to only deal with the, the really spicy ones that I, I like the most. And so I, I, I like question number two. Well, question number one is whether corporal punishment can open blind eyes and give light to dark understanding. Question number two whether carnal punishments can produce any more than a carnal repentance and obedience. And I think that really gets yeah. at the heart of the, the objection, the issues that, that the Baptists have. And I mean, let's, I mean, can we not say that there's a sense in which, you know, can, can culture produce anything other than cultural religion, you know, and is cultural religion what we're aiming for? I think that's things that we need yeah. to we need to think about. I love question four: yeah. whether those who would force other men's consciences 
would they be willing to have theirs forced? Yeah. Well, I think that that brings up an interesting point. I mean, first, yeah, uh, you can't, you can compel external conformity, right? You can make men go, go to worship. You can compel men to attend worship or you can imprison them or, or, or find them for not doing so. Um, but you can't compel faith. You can't compel uh, obedience from the heart. You can't compel those things. Those require conversion. That's the work of God. The magistrate uh, cannot do that. And, and another thing that comes up here, right? Uh, like you said in question four, and, and it, I think it's kind of continued even in question five. And that's the, the idea that in many ways, uh, established religion, and, and especially that which is compelled by the magistrate, uh, can change based upon who's in charge, yeah. you know? So you put someone else in charge, their doctrine's different, their belief on X, Y, or Z is different, then, then be ready for them to compel or force your conscience on those matters, um, because it, it's dependent upon whoever it is that is given uh, authority to determine religious doctrine. It's all about who's got the power. That's it. Mm. I know anytime you say power, you get to thinking power, 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 wonder, working, One, power. wonder, working, power. Yeah, sorry. I had that G on there. Wonder, working, power. Yeah. It's one of my favorite memes of all time. And it's true. It's how I sing it. I sure didn't sing it the proper English way. Not the way the words are supposed to be said. And it does have an influence, folks, because I'm 34 and I still have to struggle with saying power instead mm. of power. All right. So I can imagine you walking across the campus of Southern Seminary saying power, power, power. I can see I can see that in my mind. I, I may have whistled it a few times as I have pushed yeah. the books back and forth. So so he so we keep moving through because I, I do want to get to the really good ones um we already heard that Jesse who he thinks the beast is of revelation 13 you think he agrees with Samuel Richardson I think Helwes says uh you get the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church as a two-headed two beasts yeah I love these. I mean, these are questions that I think are very legitimate. I mean, question 16, whether ever God did plant his church by violence and bloodshed. Um, by the way, that's one. That's one. I need to look up the history of kind of that that phrase. Um, but that appears, I think, in Williams and in, in Merton verbatim. So I, I don't know where that exact phrasing initially comes from, but you can find that that question almost verbatim in both of those works. Um, so, so when I read that, I immediately thought that that phrasing is very similar as well, as well as question 17, which I alluded to earlier, whether tares may not become wheat and the blinded sea. Uh, so obviously he's talking about conversion there. That is almost verbatim in, I think, Williams and in Merton as well. Uh, so there, there is this, uh, continuity, not only of thought and ideas, uh, but even in, in exact phrasing, which I think tells us something about uh, what Richardson has been reading. What did you think of this question 20 and about Abraham among the Canaanites and the whole illustrations that he gives of how the people of God have called and sought to be good citizens in places where their religion was not the religion of the land. Yeah. Um, 
So Abraham is contrary in religion, he says, to the Canaanites. Um, but it's not as if Abraham goes out and tries to forcibly convert the Canaanites uh, or to force them to worship um, the one true God. And uh, he gives some other references of that as well. And I, I think as a continuation of the discussion about wheat and tares and how conversion occurs and how Christianity spreads, uh, the, the Judeo-Christian religion spreads, is not by violence, not by bloodshed, not by compelling men through, uh, the, uh, through fines or imprisonment or the sword or those sorts of things. That's not, not how it's to spread. That's not how it spreads uh, in the Bible. But, um, but is, uh, is through other means, uh, through the work of God. And so he's just saying, even in the Old Testament, um, you see these figures and, and they don't do what, we're, what is being done here in England in this time. Of course, one of the other things that he also points out is the difference, and that's something we've said in other episodes, the difference or the distinction to be made between God's covenant people in the Old Testament and his new covenant people uh, after the coming of Christ, um, Richardson points out that distinction as well. I think in part, though, what he's, what he's doing is even pointing to these Old Testament figures saying that you don't have religious conversion, uh, even, even among Abraham, and he gives examples uh, of others as well. Now, I think it's interesting on question number 29, considering who... The context here of those who had suffered greatly in English Protestant history for the translating of the scriptures into the language of the people, he asked the question, question 29, whether it be not in vain for us to have Bibles in English, if contrary to our understanding of them, we must believe as the church believes, whether it be right or wrong. Yeah. Again, this is another thing that appears in Merton, uh, um, uh, the exact same idea. And he's saying, you know, the Roman Catholic Church forbade people from having the Bible in their own language. They're dependent uh, upon the church for doctrine. You gave us the Bible in our own language, yet we're still dependent upon the church for doctrine. We can't, we can't interpret the Bible on our own. And he actually kind of gets at that this... <laughs> This approach is is, uh, is is not any less harsh. Maybe it's more harsh uh, than than Roman Catholicism. You, you gave us the Bible, but but we still can't go anywhere other. We still can't interpret the text in any way other than uh, what the Church tells us. We can believe. So in many ways, we have the Bible, but we really just have a magisterium still. And then in question thirty five, with another allusion, well, he cites John four directly, but we also hear his. Um, bringing from Matthew 23, he says, whether God will accept of a painted sepulcher, a shadow, a mere complement of obedience, when the hearer is dead, and when the heart, is it harder here? Heart is dead and rotten and hates God and all that is good. God hath no need of hypocrites, much less of forced ones. God will have those mm -hmm. to worship him as can worship him in spirit and in truth. So we're seeing yeah. here from Richardson again, really one of the things that animated the Baptist a lot was what they saw as dead formal religion that was rituals and tradition and motion, but there had been no heart change. Now, sometimes people say, well, that's revivalistic. Well, 
you know, and blame that on the first great awakening. Well, we're a hundred years before that. I mean, this has always been, and I would say it's, this is much of what the early Protestants were, their issues with Rome was the, the lifeless mannerism of worship that had corrupted. But the problem is you can't just exchange one thing for the other. There must be this recognition of the power of the gospel and conversion, of changing mm-hmm. hearts radically from within, that the external flows from the internal. Yeah. And I, and I don't doubt, you know, this comes up in many modern conversations about these sorts of things. I don't doubt that Richardson wanted to see Christianity prevail uh, in, in English culture. And I don't doubt that he wanted to see conformity uh, to what he thought were the teachings of Scripture. So, so it's not as if he just wants a completely pluralistic society. But his point is, God is not interested. We see it in the Old Testament. Of course, he's appealing to the New Testament and the religious leaders. God is not interested in hypocritical worship. So if we compel men to go to church and we compel men to worship, but it is not an overflow of a transformed heart, God isn't interested in that. So what have we achieved? What have we done? Is he in need of hypocritical worship? Uh, so, so what, what is it exactly that we are achieving? And I, and I think that's a really fair question, uh, and really gets at the heart of why, uh, compulsory or compelled worship, uh, doesn't really achieve the end that it's intended to. All right. Moving on to these, these really, really spicy ones quickly. Number 43, if no religion is to be practiced, but that which the Commonwealth shall approve on. What, what if they will approve of no religion? Then man have no religion at all? Yeah. Yeah, I think he's saying if you give, if you give, the, if you give this power, this authority uh, to, uh, to the, the ruling authorities, if this is within their realm, this is within their domain to judge, what if they say no religion at all? Now I'm reading here Jesse's notes here. So, Question 51, we summarize it this way. Jesse's interpretation, the majority will always win. Is that true, Jesse? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of scared with you reading my uh, notes out loud here. Um, let's see. I'm trying to look back at 51. I want to see what so he's saying. basically talking about those who... Those who take in power, um, the restricting of preaching. Oh, yeah. And he's he's talking about orthodoxy yeah. in, in some ways. Yeah. So the maintenance of orthodoxy, uh, you know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't work by like a simple majority. Um, that doesn't work. Question 52, the, the notes are even more astounding. Bloody Mary was right. You heard it here, folks. Jesse believes she was right. I didn't right, know you were egalitarian. Sa- 52 says, if the magistrate, as a magistrate, have power from Christ to punish such as he is persuaded in his conscience are erroneous and heretical, or because he differs in religion from the magistrate, then Queen Mary and her parliament did well in burying the martyrs for differing from her established religion they being as contrary to her religion as any are now in the magistrate's eyes. 
Yeah. So he's saying Bloody Mary was right. If, if how this works is basically that it's the religion of the magistrate, and uh, and and if Mary, let's say, is functioning as, as something of like the head of the church, uh, and uh, she's able to determine these things, then we shouldn't say that she was wrong. She had the authority. She had the power to do this. She acted in accordance with her uh, beliefs. So yeah, Bloody Mary was right. That's what that's what Samuel Richardson is saying. If if the way that we're going about this is correct, then then Bloody Mary was in the right. In question six, uh, question fifty nine, excuse me, uh, Richardson says that the setup of the Westminster Assembly and a state Presbyterian church would mean that Luther and Calvin would be punished in some way because of differences between the two. He really, he's really, you know, I mean, Bloody Mary, Luther and Calvin here. I mean, Richardson's really going; he's going for the jugular. Yeah. He's, he's bringing the heat. Yeah, I think he's, no, I was just going to say, I, I think he's saying maybe re, these revered figures in some circles of the, of the magisterial reformers, uh, they would be found in the wrong. They would disagree uh, with the established religion that we have here in, in England. And so, uh, yeah, so he's saying that uh, if that's the case, then Luther and Calvin and other good men, if they were now among us, he says, they should be punished for the errors they held, as well as others uh, for the truth. So I, th I think these are good and legitimate questions to ask. What are the implications of these things that we're saying that we believe? Question 61, Jesse summarizes this way. Smiley face, they baptize <laughs> infants, exclamation point. What's Richardson getting at there? Okay, 61, he says, whether the priest's practice be not contrary to the apostles' practice. Take one instance. The apostles dipped vis-a-vis -vis baptized persons after they believed and confessed their faith, whereas they sprinkled persons before they believe. Yea, before they can speak, they baptized persons in a river, Acts 2 and 8, uh, Matthew 3. These sprinkle water upon their faces. Yet if you will believe them, they are the, excess, they are, they are the successors of the apostles and follow their step. So that's the question that he's asking. Mm, still uh, yeah, so he's, pertinent to this day. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so he's saying the apostles baptized essentially uh, by immersion, but he's also saying that they baptized believers. That's the key thing. And here we have priests uh, that are sprinkling uh, and sprinkling people who are not even capable of yet believing. Uh, but yet they would have you believe that they're the ones that they're the, that are the successors of the apostles. Yeah. That, mm -hmm. that is kind of spicy, but consistent Baptist argument. Question 63, Jesse summarizes, they want power. <laughs> All right. 63 he says, whether the name of uh, settling religion be not a fine pretense to establish error and tyranny. We desire not liberty of conscience, not the, we desire not liberty of conscience of any man. Uh, let us enjoy our right, our liberty of persons and estates, and we will give them leave to hang our religion and consciences too, if they can. That is our, not our religion, not can they see nor reach our conscience, uh, is question 28. And I am persuaded that the hand of God and man will be against England and Scotland till they cease troubling 
they seize troubling men for matters of religion. Yeah. So he's saying he can't help but think that there, there's a sense in which there's a desire for authority. There's a desire for power. There's a desire for control uh, that goes beyond something like orthodoxy uh, or, you know, the ordered worship of God. There, there's a, a desire for power. And then the last question for us to talk about is question 69. Now, I, I have been at a tent revival. I've never run at one, but I know that it happens. That's because you were preaching, so you couldn't run up and down the well, aisle. I have you were to doing say nobody ran when I was up there. I didn't get that response. Oh, okay. All right. um, but Jesse's note in the margin here is the equivalent of somebody taking a lap, as my dad would put it at one of these tent revivals. So we've got here, mm. Jesse's note is three exclamation mm. points. He read Roger Williams, three exclamation points. So I'm not going to let Jesse read this part. <laughs> so we're going to see whether the priest were not the cause of the burning of the book entitled The Bloody Tenant. So it shows us what, Jesse, that Samuel Richardson was a reader of Roger Williams, if we haven't already gathered I mean, that so far. It, 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 I, here are the options. He's either reading Roger Williams and he's getting some of John Merton through Roger Williams, or he's reading John Merton. I mean, I think the chances are he's reading Roger Williams, but that he directly cites the bloody tenant and basically says the reason that the priests burned this book is because it's against uh, religious persecution um, tells us that he's familiar with the book. And again, if you look through this work and you lay it side by side with what you find in Merton and you find in Williams, it's not that he's just aware of the book. He he has to have read uh, one of those works, uh, one of the two works from from Merton or Williams as Bloody Tenant. But I do think that awareness of Williams as Bloody Tenant shows us some connection not only with those general Baptists, like we said, when we were talking about Merton that came before, but also with Roger Williams in the American context, uh, there is some uh, interaction between these various uh, groups of Baptists, especially on this issue of religious toleration. I think you could find it also in Believer's Baptism. Um, but, but when I was reading this and I ran across him directly referencing the bloody tenant, I already had some suspicions earlier because of some of the phrasing uh, of some of these points. But then when I saw that directly, you're right. I, I was, I was, uh, I was, I was about ready to take a lap around the tent. In the words of the great singer and leader of the cathedral quartet, George Ounce, Jesse almost had himself a running spell. So, mm. Hey, I, I'm going to say 98% of the people watching this, if they've made it this far, uh, have no idea who the, the, the cathedrals are. Great Southern Gospel group, and you should go look up We Shall See Jesus by the Cathedrals. Mm. It's really good. I would sing it, but those who are still with us would definitely turn off the episode by that by this point. That one has a really strong start. They just go right into yeah. We We Shall See Jesus. Yeah. Well, they basically they sing mm. they sing all the verses, and then you go into the chorus. So, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, Jesse, I, should people read Samuel Richardson? 
I think so. I mean, uh, one of the things that I think we, I, it, it would be worth adding is Richardson has uh, one work in particular where he just really, really praises Oliver Cromwell and the Protectorate. And he is very appreciative for Cromwell and the Protectorate. He believes Cromwell to be uh, an incredible godly man. And he's thankful for Cromwell and Cromwell, Cromwell's work. And I mean, it, it's just, it's almost over the top how, how appreciative he is of Cromwell and how much he, he admires him. Uh, one of the things that he states throughout there is if we could get rid of the institution of the tithe, uh, then he, he could for, sort of fully accept uh, much of what Cromwell has done and what he's for. Uh, but he seems to uh, oppose established religion in the sense of being supported by the tithe. And he mentions it on no fewer than three occasions. But I think in this discussion, uh, thinking about context and the nuance of all of these things, he does have a very high view of, of Oliver Cromwell, for sure, in the, uh, in the 1650s. Well, I certainly enjoyed reading through this, and I, I hope um, our audience is enjoying learning as some of these more, we would say, obscure early Baptist and how they're contributing to the, the formation of Baptist identity and Baptist theology. As we wrap up this week's episode, um, Jesse and I are recording this before both he and I will be on the road and uh, we'll be singing on the road again. And uh, mm. Jesse, you're headed where? I'm heading to Raleigh, North Carolina for the National Association of Free Will Baptists. It's like uh, the Southern Baptist Convention on a smaller scale. Is that the SBC for semi-Pelagians? It is not. It is not. It's the, it's the, it's the annual meeting for Reformed Arminians, the early true Baptists. All, all, all Reformed Arminians there? You mean are all Free Will Baptists Reformed Arminians? Yes. Um, that's probably not the case. Yeah, Jesse's told me about that. Just like the SBC, they have kind of a diversity in their uh, in their denominational setting. Well, Jesse's going to Raleigh for church business. I'm going to the beach, and I will be mm. making my way down to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And by the time that you listen to this episode, I will already have enjoyed some gumbo, a shrimp pull boy etouffee jambalaya and a whole lot more well hey as you're you're enjoying that great weather and that food time with family and i'm in raleigh you know at a business meetings and things like that just be reminded stay baptist stay baptist say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.